All right, let's um, pray before we go further. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a speaking God, um, that you uh, give your word to us that we might know you. And we thank you that you speak to us in so many different ways, in uh, parables and texts and um, songs like we have today. And we ask that we might understand that um, and uh, that we might remember your word so that it changes our lives. Amen. Before I get into the passage uh, directly, um, I wanted to start by thinking about two Christian ideas. Um, so, and then we're going to take those two ideas and use them to discuss and understand the passage. And those uh, ideas are the twin ideas of hope and faith. Now, the first of those, hope, is a bit of a tricky, uh, tricky one because the Christian concept of hope kind of overlaps with the way that uh, we use it in everyday language, but it's also uh, a little bit different. So we use the word hope. Like if we're talking about hope, we might say something like, I hope it won't rain on the weekend. So if I say that, I hope it won't rain, I don't really know whether it's going to rain or not. I'm saying, well, if I am saying I hope, um, at that point I probably haven't checked the weather report. I'm kind of indicating that I don't know. Um, I just mean that I don't want it to rain on the weekend. My desire is that you know, I can have my picnic or whatever's going on. Um, so it's a word that expresses our want for something or desire for something to happen in the future. Uh, and that's part of the idea of a Christian hope. But hope can also mean the thing itself, the thing that we desire. Okay, So not just the act of desiring it, but focuses on that end thing. Uh, so... Uh, not just my wanting that it's a sunny day on the weekend, but the sunny day itself. So that would be more like saying, I have put my hope in a sunny day. Right? So I've placed my hope, my hope is on that thing that is the sunny day. And that's kind of closer to a Christian understanding of hope. Hope is a future thing um, that we both desire but also that we commit to. It's kind of the end point that our journey is focused on. It's the thing that we're working towards. And it's a really good thing for us to stop in our lives and to think about what our hope is. What have we put our hope in? Uh, what is the goal? What is the objective that we build our lives around? Uh, for many Australians, our great hope is retirement. Okay, that's the great hope of our working lives. Uh, so we look forward to a time when we're no longer going to need to work, a time when we uh, finally have the house paid off, if you can imagine such a thing. Uh, and then, you know, with that paid off, uh, then it's a time that we can buy our uh, boat or our caravan or whatever other toy that our mortgage has uh, prevented us from laying our hands on. It's a time when 
We're hoping that our kids will be more independent and not causing us too much grief. And then we can head up to Kalbarri or down to Gracetown or fly to Bali or do whatever our hearts desire. Another word for hope is our reward. It's the thing that we want to obtain. Uh, and we're going to put a fair bit, uh, we're going to put up with a fair bit in our working life uh, because it allows us to achieve that great hope. On a smaller scale, you may not be thinking that far ahead, uh, especially if you're uh, younger. Uh, on a smaller scale, we just live for the weekend. Uh, some people might put their hope in a kind of notoriety or some level of recognition or importance. And often we can gain that from our career itself. That's the thing that we're hoping for, is to achieve things in this life. And um, th the reason that we do that, the reason that that's so strong in us as Australians, is because we're flooded with kind of images of uh, kind of talent and achievement in, you know, whatever kind of uh, realm that we kind of look into. So it's not like we live uh, anymore in small villages uh, where we would just kind of see uh, the people around us and then kind of value, therefore, those people and their commitments to the community. That's what would be prized. But we live in a global village where we can't just see the people around us, but we see the best of the best and have reference to them all the time. So we're bombarded with, with we study the great writers and the great uh, artists. We, we know about the great scientists. Uh, the, the news tells us about the great entrepreneurs of our age. And then we have Taylor Swift. Right, and if you haven't seen 10 images of Taylor Swift this week, then, then well done to you. And can I join you in whatever, whatever hole you're living in? I'm not trying to bring down um, Taylor Swift. Um, but what I want to just point out is the way that uh, she is her own brand. And that is a kind of this complete package of talent and beauty and notoriety and fame and celebrity and we see that and we're bombarded with these images and we can't help but just want a small slice of that in whatever field that we would like to achieve in. Other people put their hope in marriage put their hope in uh, having children uh, because that's the thing that makes them feel secure and significant in life. And all of these things that I've mentioned to a greater or lesser degree can be good and all of them are redeemable. But the question is, what do we put our hope in? What's the, what's the single, what's the greatest object that our life is moving towards? What's the carrot, if you like? So you know about the carrot? You know, you've seen the picture of the guy who's sitting on the donkey and he's got the stick and then it, kind of the string with a carrot. So there's always this carrot in front of the donkey and the donkey will just keep walking as long as he thinks he's getting closer and closer to the, to the carrot, right? 
But what's the thing in our life that's driving our decisions, our life? What moves us forward? What's the thing that if you took it away from us, then the journey of life just wouldn't be the same? And they're all worldly things. They're all things that the world runs after. And we too may fall into. But as Christians, we put our hope into things that are beyond us, beyond this world. And and we can kind of express that, and the Bible expresses that in many different ways. It can talk about us putting our hope in God or put our hope in Christ, or put our hope in his kingdom in the new creation, the the life after uh, this one. And uh, one of the things that's really worthwhile doing, um, and just say it was a Sunday, and just say you had a free Sunday afternoon, one thing that you could do is if you have like an electronic Bible, like on your phone or your computer or um, the internet or something, And you can do a search on it. Put the word put and hope together in the search so that it'll find all the verses in the Bible that has those two words. And then spend time just reading all the things that we're to put our hope in. There's lots of them. But 1 Timothy 4, verse 10 puts it this way. It says, That is why we labour and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God. So that's the Christian hope, putting our hope in the living God. But I said before that hope has a twin and that is faith. Okay, so if hope is the thing that is focused on the goal, the end point, then faith is trusting day to day that we're going to receive that thing. Faith is the active uh, working towards our hope. And so the writer to the Hebrews puts it like this. So this is Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 1. So you could turn to that or just if you're writing it down, jot it down to have a look or listen to it really carefully because uh, listen carefully to what it says about faith and hope. It says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for. Right, So it's the confidence that we have in that thing, the thing that we hope for, that goal. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Right, So we cannot see the thing that we hope for. We can't see Christ's glorious return. We can't see the perfection of the new creation. But faith is what gives us confidence... Not just that it's going to come, but assurance that when it does, that we're going to be a part of it. Okay, so we've talked a bit about where we place our hope, but we need to think also about how we find our faith. How do we continue to believe in the coming of God's perfect kingdom, a kingdom of of righteousness and justice, when we see injustice around us in the world how can we continue to put our hope in a good God when we suffer and how do we live a a life that forsakes all the wonderful looking shiny and beautiful things of this world 
for the sake of pressing on to be counted worthy of the gospel on the last day. Where do we find that faith? And that question is answered by Habakkuk. And so we need to get into that now. And in order to do that, in order to find answers, we need to first notice that we need to notice what we have here in this chapter 3 and how all the bits fit together. And once we do that, it starts to, uh, we start to be able to see its meaning more easily. So if you look at the start and the end of, uh, the, of chapter 3 of what we have, you'll see that we have here a psalm. It's very much like what we find in the book of the Psalms. So if you look at the first line, uh, it says a prayer of uh, Habakkuk. So that's the way that many of the Psalms start by announcing that it's a prayer of somebody. Uh, um, then it says on Shig in on Oth, which is probably a, a musical term. We don't know, but we assume that is. That's part of the, the Psalm. Uh, and then if you kind of look, so that's in the first line, and then you look at like the bracket of it in the last line, um, it says for the director of music on stringed instruments. So it's a prayer, it's a prayer of Habakkuk, it's, but it's one that's written in a poetic form and it's to be sung and performed. And uh, we've sung songs today, uh, even one of them reflecting on uh, this uh, psalm. And the songs that we sing uh, have a structure, right? We have a way of kind of they fit together and a pattern to them. So songs can have um, uh, verses, so it could be a series of verses, or it might have a chorus, so you have verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Uh, if it's a more kind of uh, modern song, then it sort of has verse and choruses and it's got to have a bridge in there somewhere and then back to a verse or whatever, um, that's the structure around uh, what we have. And in this psalm, they do things differently, uh, but it has a structure too. And once we see that, it's easier to get the meaning. And what we have here is a sandwich with a conclusion at the end. Okay, so it's a sandwich in the sense that verses 2 and uh, verses 16 are kind of parallel and work together and they bracket around the bit in the middle. So that's kind of like the meat in the sandwich, which is verses, um, kind of verses 3 to 15. And when we see the way that verses uh, 2 and 16 work together, that's kind of a helpful clue to what's going on here. And then at the end, in verses 17 to 19, we get a conclusion, which is a conclusion to the psalm and a conclusion to the whole uh, book of Habakkuk. So we have a kind of a, a sandwich. It's actually a judgment sandwich uh, with judgment in the middle. And it's a judgment sandwich served in hope, with hope around it, with a side of faith, with faith at the end. So we have judgment served in hope with a side of faith. And we're going to look at those things. We're going to look at judgment and hope and faith in that order. Um, but to do that, we need to go a little bit out of the order of the psalm because we need to kind of recognise that it is a sandwich and we want to keep verses 2 and 16 together. And in really, to, in order to understand those verses, uh, it's best to first kind of look at 3 to 15 
and then see kind of what holds 2 and 16 together. So what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through fairly briefly uh, verses 3 to 15 and uh, look at the meat in the sandwich, if you like, look at the judgment. So in verse 2, Habakkuk asks God to make his great deeds known in his time. And then what we get in this middle part, uh, verses 3 to 15, we get this prophetic vision of God's great deeds, the very thing that Habakkuk's just prayed for in verse 2. And what happens in these verses is, is that they combine references of what's happened in the past with visions of God's uh, greatness and his glory and power. And so if you look at verses 3 and verse 7, uh, you'll see that there are place names there. Uh, and those places are places that are associated with uh, the journey out of uh, Egypt. Okay, so um, uh, we have that, that kind of like as if the people are coming up out of Egypt into the land. Uh, and then if you look at verse 15, we hear of, of uh, trampling the sea and churning the great waters. And they're words that key us in to remind us of the exodus when God saved his people from Egypt and he allowed his people to cross the sea and then drown the Egyptian army. And so we have here reminders of God's great deeds in the past. In fact, from Habakkuk's point of view, that's the greatest deeds of God, looking back into what is essentially the gospel of, of Israel in the Old Testament, the exodus and their salvation out of slavery. And the passage then is, uh, along with those images, uh, it's full of images of God's glory. So, uh, for example, look at verse 4. Uh, his splendour was like the sunrise, rays flashed from his hands where his power was hidden. Um, they're not just pictures of how great God is and how powerful, um, but how terrifying God is. So look at verse 5. He sends plagues and pestilence. Uh, verse 6. He stood and shook the earth. He hooked and made the nations tremble. So these are images of, of, uh, of great power, of God coming in war against his enemy. Uh, in verse 6, he marches on forever. Um, oh, sorry, that's in verse 9. Uh, sorry, no, in verse 9, he uncovers his bow. Uh, he has called for many arrows. And then we might ask, why is God at war? Why, why do we have these images of power and uh, glory and war all mixed together? And that's the question that's asked in verse 8. Uh, it says, were you angry at the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? And that's a rhetorical question. The answer is, of course, no. God doesn't get angry at rivers. God is acting against people. He's acting in judgment. The answer comes in verse 13. Let's have a look at verse 13 there. It shows us the point of this section. It says... You came out, the come, you came out, come out is, is words of war in their, in their way of thinking. You came out 
to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. So all this power and war and judgment in this vision is to remind Habakkuk and to remind us of God's awesome power when he comes to judge, when he comes to judge the wicked and deliver his righteous people. And this brings us back to verses 2 and verse 16, which, as I've said, sit like brackets around this awesome vision. So in the first half of verse 2, it says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Right, so that's what we've actually just seen in verses 3 to 16. Okay, the, this fame of God, the, the awe, the, the, the awesome deeds that have been shown. Habakkuk has heard of God's fame and Habakkuk has heard of God's great power in the Exodus. And he says, I stand in awe of your great deeds. And, and this is what we have described to us, God's great and awesome deeds. And then in the second half of the verse, we see Habakkuk's request to God. So he's seen those deeds, he knows about them. And then he asks, this is what, he, this is what he's asking God in his prayer. He asks God, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Right, so Habakkuk looks to the past in order to find his hope for the future. That's his hope. What he's praying for is the future. He knows God. He knows God's great acts in delivering his people in the past and he prays that he might see similar things, the same things in his day. And, and this is more than a fleeting hope for Habakkuk. This is more than kind of a wish on the wind. Look at verse 16, which is an echo of verse 2. In the first half, he thinks again of God's awesome judgment. Okay, in the second half, he concludes his prayer from verse 2. This is his conclusion to what he's prayed. He says, Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. So he's prayed that he'll see God acting in his day and then he concludes by saying that he's going to wait patiently. He has just chosen to put his hope in God. His hope is there. He can wait patiently now. And how has he been able to make that choice? Okay, He's been able to do that by being filled with this vision of God uh, that reminds him of God's great acts in history. Uh, these, this great vision that displays God's nature, that displays his ability uh, to act in his time. And that's how we need to put our hope in God, by looking back and looking up. When we look back to God's great deeds, and we see that in the Bible, and when we look up in prayer. And so we need to kind of put this back together in the context of uh, the book of Habakkuk uh, that we've been working through for the last uh, um, couple of weeks. 
So in chapter 1, if you remember, Habakkuk cries out to God because of the injustice that he sees around him within Judah, within his own country. And God replies and says that he's going to send the Babylonians, right? He's going to send the, the enemies against Judah. And then he goes into some detail, goes to length to describe how terrible the Babylonians will be. So there is this fearsome judgment of God that's coming on Judah, that's coming on God's own people. And in verse... Uh, 16 that we have here he says I heard and my heart pounded my lips quivered at the sound decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled so perhaps in part he thinks that as he thinks back to the remembering God's great works in the exodus but perhaps too Habakkuk is referring to his own fate that God has told him is coming, the fate of Judah. He is in Judah and these horrific enemies are coming. And back in chapter 1, Habakkuk questions God again, asking whether it's really right that a holy God should use a sinful enemy as his means of disciplining his people. And God replies and says that, the Babylonians will be punished in their turn, as will all the wicked be punished. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. That, that is to live with a trust that motivates obedience. So if you look again at verse 2, part of what Habakkuk prays is... Uh, is that within God's judgment on Judah, so he's accepted that, he knows it's coming, but within that, that God will remember his promise of mercy and his promise to give life to the righteous through their faithfulness. And in verse 16, he's waiting patiently for the invading Babylonian army to be the judges of Judah, to come against him. And his act of patience here, which is so different to what we read at the start of the book when he says, how long, O Lord, this patience is a demonstration of the faithfulness that he has learnt. He is the righteous man living by faithfulness. He's learned to put his trust in God's deliverance. But notice that nothing has actually changed Nothing has happened to Habakkuk. His circumstances haven't changed. He's still living in corrupt Judah and waiting for a foreign army to invade him. He hasn't had an answered prayer. He hasn't seen a miracle. He hasn't been shown a special sign. But what's changed for Habakkuk is his own perspective. So how can you put your hope in Christ as your king? How can you put your hope in everything being set right in a final judgment? How can you live a life that denies yourself for Jesus, putting all of your hope in eternity? And the answer is that like Habakkuk, we need to look 
past what we can see and we need to understand God's nature and trust in his promises. Right, And we can see that when we look backwards. God has fulfilled his promises to send his Messiah and he's raised that Messiah from the dead. And we know that he will be faithful to send him again and raise us to new life just as he raised Christ. And what we need to do now is to live out our hope faithfully, which brings us to the last section, which expresses Habakkuk's faithful life of patient waiting. And we have that in verses uh, 17 to 19. Habakkuk says that regardless of whatever he sees in this life, so regardless of of whether he sees prosperity, uh, whether destruction comes, regardless of whatever tragedies come, he will choose to rejoice in the Lord. He has confidence in what he hopes for. He has assurance about what he does not see. You see, if you want to put your hope in God, right, if you, if you want to put your hope in a new creation that you can't see, then it would be foolish, wouldn't it, if we found our faith in things that we can see, right? And that's where we go wrong in life. That's where our faith falls down because we put our faith, we put our trust, we judge things based on the things that are seen, not the things that are unseen. So if you are going to base your faith on your perception that God is blessing your life, then your faith is going to fall apart really quickly when things go wrong in your life. You've put your faith in the things that you've seen, not in the unseen God, and it's going to fall apart on you. But we need to see that both good things, whether we're being blessed or whether we're we're suffering, both, are things that can be seen and neither should cause us to put hope or to lose hope in something that is unseen. God is working beyond your riches. He's working beyond your poverty. He's working beyond your sickness. He's working beyond your health and neither of them indicate anything about whether you're going to receive God's kingdom. If your faith is based on an experience of church that you can see, either by the traditions and the the comfort of the church or by the hype or of of feeling God uh, in a church service, then your faith is going to shrivel pretty fast when your church falls apart or when your pastor sins. Because what you've actually done is put your faith in the church, not in, the, not in Christ, who is the head of the church. And so when you see that thing, that thing that you can see falls around you, you will lose your faith. Christianity is not a mystical experience. It's not an experience of being shown blessings or curses. Christianity is based on the historical work of an unchanging God. The one thing, the one thing that we have seen, the one thing that is seeable that gives us great evidence 
of the Christ is Christ coming in the flesh. That's the seen thing from the unseen. And we have that great evidence of the new creation in Christ's resurrection. That's the one glimpse that we get and we have that attested to in the Bible. And that is what we need to put our hope in. So we need to put our hope in Christ and we need to live by faith because we know that no matter what we see, we know that God is good and that his promises will come to pass. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you fill us with hope day to day in our lives. We pray that you give us a great hope uh, in the things that are unseen, the things that are yet to come. And we pray that you give us faith that might carry us through every um, suffering, every setback, every sickness, uh, every challenge that we have in our lives. We pray that you help us to hold on to the great gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, and put our hope in him and nothing else. And we ask this in his name. Amen.